Hi, and welcome to episode three of season two of Motion and Meaning. I'm your host, Val Head, and on today's show, Donovan Hutchinson joins us to talk about, well, animation. That's kind of what this whole podcast is about. Donovan is the person behind the CSS Animation Rocks website. He runs a Twitter account for that site where he tweets a lot. He's a self-described freelance front-end person where he helps companies and startups with product and UI design building things for the web. I thought that title was a pretty interesting one. So I started out by asking Donovan to just explain a little bit more about why he chose that title. I, I can't settle on one specific part and say I'm just a UI person or just a designer. It's it's nice to be involved in different parts of it, I think. Right. And I mean, there's so much opportunity to touch so many different things. Like you, even being specializing in front end doesn't mean like you're really limited to one thing. So it's, it's good. Uh, you mentioned that you've been, you've been doing this for quite some time. How, how is seeing all of these changes over the web industry? Like, how does that make the current, I guess, web design landscape look? Is it like, um, super exciting? Was was the best time, did the best time already happen? Or do you think we're, you know, how do you think this fits in in the grand history of the web? I wouldn't say that the best time has happened. I think we're getting to an every time, continually we're getting toward a better time for the internet in terms of what can be done. The The tools that are, are being created continually are improving and becoming more diverse and more powerful. But, you know, looking back, things used to be quite a lot simpler for the webmaster. We used to be able to, you know, create a couple of files, throw them onto the web server, and that was basically the job. Um, so for getting into the industry, I'd say it's pretty tough now, and there's a lot more choices to think about before you even start. So maybe that makes it more difficult. It does seem more complicated. But I mean, you still can just put together a few, you know, like flat files and have a website. Like you can still do that, but that's not really, it's not really what they're thinking you're going to do, right? Like that's not, that's not the common definition of one. True. But people can still jump in and make things. That's what's brilliant. You can go onto CodePen or something like that. And you don't have to then think about hosting or think about the back end. And you can try ideas. Yeah, I love CodePen for that. It's just, it's great to see, you know, people just trying out like pretty much anything. Like on CodePen, there's like serious work things, like people trying to solve like a work problem, you know, like layout issues or, or whatever else. And then there's also all this experimentation, which is what I love about it, that kind of, um, I don't know, like collision of these two sides of, of what web designers and web developers like to do. I see it as a bit like what Dribble used to be for design in terms of a place you go for inspiration to get some ideas and and then try them out. So you mentioned things about like technology changing in, in like today's web with all of the things that have changed over the years. How important do you think it is for web folks to to understand how web animation works and how to use it? Well, I've been thinking a lot about how uh, animation and web animation, it's really part of design. And design is bigger than just how things look. It's how they work. It's the intent. It's how people get something out of a, an experience of using an app or a website. Um, so in the context of that, I think it's like typography or web layouts. It's something that designers can use to deliver a useful and hopefully very effective experience in the apps and websites they design. For that reason, I don't think it really stops at just the designer to take consideration of, of, of web animation. In fact, I think being involved with the design process is something that's important for everyone from from the stakeholders through to the developers. In the same way, like being aware of good ways to animate and the importance of getting the animations right, it's very much a shared responsibility. Right, right. Like I love the idea of, um, you know, just animation being part of design, you know, of like 
kind of like we have this whole array of tools that we use to create you know, to design a thing essentially. And, you know, animation is just one of those things we can use. So it kind of requires equal attention to like type and layout and everything else we use to, you know, say what we want to say with design. And uh, it is really true that like, especially I think for web animation and, and I would love to hear your take on this too. Like, I feel like web animation especially requires that joint effort between like engineers and designers. Like it designers can't just build it all like in a vacuum and then just, you know, toss it over the fence and expect it to work out well. Like there's this, um, the performance aspect and the interactive aspect of it requires, you know, kind of both, both areas to, to be invested in it, to do it right. Absolutely. And having worked on both sides of the, of the fence on this in, in the past, I find that working as a developer, I could help designers understand what was possible in terms of what the browsers were getting good at doing and at the same time, designers could inspire me to build more impressive results too. So it works both directions. And within the context of animation, the same applies. We can say that, yes, we can do all these great things now in the browser. The, the capabilities have improved to the point where we actually can use keyframe animation confidently. We can put together relatively complicated sequences of movements that maybe would have been impossible before. And so this whole world is opening up for, for the design process to make the, the most out of. The browsers and how well they handle web animation has just changed so quickly. Like I feel like they've just gotten better and better at it. Like almost, it almost feels like daily. I know it's not really that fast, but it seems like, you know, every time you go to try things out or start a new project, you realize that there's just like more browser tools, there's better performance, and, and they're just really keeping up on this, which I think is uh, is 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 what makes it so easy to use and the thing we can use is, is their support of it. Absolutely, yeah. And also making use of good tools like Modernizer to make sure that it's a consistent experience going back through the stack to maybe some less powerful browsers or devices. <laughs> yeah, no matter what, there's still that that kind of like older devices, older browsers. There's That's the fun part of, of doing things on the web. Sure. Though I would never let it, you know, I wouldn't let that get in the way of, of trying to do the, something that's the best result we can build. How do you handle that in terms of animation? Like, do you kind of shoot for like the big picture, um, blue sky version of what most modern browsers can do and then kind of work backwards to make it supported in older browsers? Or do you consider what older browsers can do as like an initial limitation? Well, I'd say I'd start with the first one in terms of you want to really shoot for the moon in terms of what can be done in the concept before it's being built but when you approach building it then you might start with the other approach which is to make it work make it work in a way that people don't feel or aren't blocked from getting to the content or getting to the result they're trying to achieve and then layer on the extra capabilities on top of that using something like modernizer is an easy way to do that where well, an example recently was um, i was designing a sequence that would show a modal on the screen and it's a fairly standard thing. You click a button, it shows a, a box on the, on the, over, the, over the top of the UI. And initially, to build it, it was just making it appear. A simple bit of JavaScript, just show it on the page. Um, that's the most basic implementation. But the longer-term goal for the, the design was to make it move into the screen with a bit more deliberate action that actually animated in nicely. And then when it was done, went back out from where it came. And that's done then by... Uh, applying modernizer so that I know when there's a class in the HTML part of the, uh, of the HTML tag of CSS animation, I can put within that the animation rules themselves and then 
I know that if a browser comes along that doesn't have the capability to handle the animation, it just won't even try. Right, right. So you don't ever end up in that situation of someone like not being able to see it or, or having that behavior be broken because, you know, that's what's ever in that modal is probably a thing they actually want to like, you know, read and or interact with. Yeah, you don't want it to be invisible or missing from the experience. Uh, an example might be if there's an animation that needs to start at opacity of zero, but be delayed for a little while. Um, an easy approach is to set it initially as having an opacity of zero. But then that relies on their, the browser being able to do the animation that makes it visible. Right. So rather than just have that hanging out there and have the thing be invisible for people that maybe don't have the capability to see the animation, that's wrapped within the uh, see the CSS animation class itself on the root HTML tag. So that initially it has a opacity of one, but if it can do animation, then you set the animation, the opacity to zero. Right, right. Like you want to think of those initial states, both like when the animation exists and can be executed and when everything just, you know, when it, that can't be handled at all. It's like, you know, you want to make sure the things will still make sense. And I think that's kind of a, sometimes a tough challenge to remember to think about that because you're like, oh, I've got this great animation. What happens if it doesn't work? And you're like, oh, oops, <laughs> especially that opacity thing. I think that gets a lot of people. So you do it once and then you learn like, nope, never set it ahead of time. <laughs> it's an easy one. I, I can't pretend I haven't walked into that trap with myself in the past. Oh, exactly. It's like one of those one of those mistakes maybe you have to do once and then you're like, oh, no, nothing is on the page. It's not there. <laughs> so we ta you're talking a little bit about how, you know, you build these animations like that modal example. When in your process do you start thinking about animation uh, for, for various projects you work on? Like at what point are you like, all right, now we think about how animation is going to work here? Uh, it depends on the project, but I really try to make it a, dis a discussion point as early as possible during the process. It, like we said, in the same way that you might think about the, the color choices of a brand, it can be useful to talk about what the character is of the brand and how it is portrayed or understood by people. Uh, knowing that information can be useful when you think about how things might move in terms of selling the, the brand. Maybe the marketing page might have elements that move in a certain way that say something about the brand itself. Um, so having that discussion is very important. I mean, in an ideal world, we would start with fully fledged style guides and make sure we think about every possible condition and design for it. But often projects don't quite go as smoothly as that. So I guess in situations like that, you know, being able to bring in the discussion as soon as possible, regardless of having a fully fledged style guide in place, mm -hmm. is still very important. How do you um, how do you start that discussion with clients about their brand, like that have nothing like a style guide? Um, like, how do you kind of tease that brand information out of them? I guess it's the same way as if you might approach any other aspect of design, um, asking questions of how people, how the stakeholders consider their brand. Um, ideally speaking to customers as well and finding out what they think of the brand and what matters to them. And it it's a part of the design process. I wouldn't consider it separate from the design process. Yeah, that, that's good. I like the idea of talking to people who actually interact with the brand too, as opposed to just, you know, looking at how it's perceived versus just what people are trying to project about their own, you know, product or company. Absolutely. And in the end, we're, we're trying to solve problems for the people that are going to be using the service. So it helps to understand that point of view. And I like that you have your, you know, you keep saying that it's like just part of the design and kind of approached as just all the rest of the design elements too, which I think is 
probably really key to how you can get things to, you know, all of your design elements, whether it's type or color or animation, kind of having that same message, trying to say that same thing about the brand, which I think is super smart. Yeah, I mean, recently I was working with Tito on a redesign of their marketing website. And just to give an example on this, the the site itself had some good designs in place. And part of my job was to build those and to bring them to life a bit more in the browser. And so we were able to talk about animation as part of that. And animation being a big part of the design, we set out at the start to define some animations that would fit the voice of the brand. So I set up a set of cubic Bezier curves that we then reused depending on the situation. Uh, one was for maybe quicker, subtle animations, and there was a slower one for those that maybe needed to draw attention. Um, I also set up some sets of keyframes from basic fades and movements that would be uh, consistent across the rest of the site. So the intent was to make them like a reusable library of, right. of animation. Like almost like an easing palette or an animation palette. Like these are the things we're working with and here's when we use each in particular one. Yes, and it's, it's more deliberate that way than maybe deciding at the time that a certain element should move in a certain way where that might result in uh, maybe inconsistency across a, a certainly a larger project. Right. Like if you have a whole team of developers working on something, you you know, everyone might fade things in a different way. And then you've got this weird mix of fade ins when you could have one consistent one that would just, you know, have a consistent feel across it. It's almost like um, with that approach, you're kind of like developing a style guide almost without actually developing a style guide. Like you're kind of like covertly creating one. Yeah, in a way. It's the beginnings of what could turn into a style guide as well. It's a palette of, of tools that you can use and reuse. And I would certainly, when it comes to animation, when we're talking about voice and character, I would try to stay away from the presets when it comes to things like easing. Um, I tend to start with the idea that we should have a a type of movement that best fits the kind of movement that the brand wants through its UI. And often ease out isn't quite that. <laughs> so it, starting off with a palette of cubic Beziers that are a bit more tweaked, maybe there's a little more bounce in them or some sort of look and feel that fits better to the brand. It's a good way to go. No, yeah, I like that approach a lot. And uh, I also encourage people to stay away from the defaults and just like come up with your own kind of like at the very least, come up with your own custom cubic Beziers that you use instead of those defaults. And if you use those enough, like over one animation or one transition, you know, no one's really going to notice, but use consistently across your whole site, suddenly that becomes your thing. And, uh, you know, even just that small decision could make such a powerful impact, which is one of my favorite things about design, just these little things, you pay attention to those details and the bigger picture changes. How do you, when you were dealing with these things of kind of like, in, you know, exploring what kind of easing would work best for the brand for Tito's project, like how did you... Um, present those to the client for discussion? Like, did you create prototypes or were you just kind of like, here's what we're doing? Or was there kind of some back and forth there as to what they thought would fit their brand as well? Uh, with Tito, I was lucky enough um, to have a client that was already starting from a pretty strong position in terms of design and a very clear understanding of just what benefits that brings of having a consistent uh, design that was like a language through the brand. So I was pretty pretty lucky that I was able to jump in and just start building it and, and show examples as I went. In terms of selling that to clients, um, maybe not all clients maybe aren't quite in that position. Um, and I guess that's where selling the benefits of design is so important. Maybe if you were like to design a call to action on a page, you'd be expected to talk about the positioning, the size, the color choices, and, and why these work together to help people sign up for the service. 
Um, but in the same way, if you're designing, say, a, a list of items and something was being added to the list, animation can be something that makes it easier to see what part of the page has changed by drawing attention to it. And these, like you say, small benefits really that are well-articulated design uh, can be as important as any of the big wow aspects of animation. Um, and selling these many small benefits then can be a part of making sure that the uh, the overall impact is understood. Right, right. And I really like that idea of just kind of like, you know, selling the design based on its purpose and what things are there to to say and to, you know, kind of guide the user through as opposed to, um, you know, or really just talking about that bigger picture and how everything fits in as opposed to doing that whole like, we put the logo on the left because that's where logos go. And, you know, being very, um, I guess, more obvious in that sense, kind of talking about bigger picture as opposed to those individual decisions. And I guess if you've taken time or been lucky enough to have the chance to speak to customers, then it makes it easier. Again, you can couch those terms in terms of this is the benefit it brings to this group of customers and why they'll find that valuable. Right, because I mean, that's what's important. Those business kind of goals are, are, are what's important to the people, the stakeholders. You know, they want their brand to come across a certain way. They want to you know, create things that their customers and their audience actually want. So if you can tie it directly to what that audience says they want or how they perceive things, you know, that there's that strength there and, and really showing how design affects these things. Doing that kind of stuff is always almost like the magic of design in a sense. You know, you're like, oh, here's how we can actually say, how, how we can create this message and, and convey it consistently in a way that people will understand it, which is uh, kind of like the power of design. Do you have any kind of go-to tools yourself that you would use to prototype or to try to convey that yourself? For web projects, I like to try to keep things in the browser and on the web. I feel like that, you know, working in the same context it's going to end up in makes it easier for people to kind of see that progression and, and see how the final results might be before you really get to a, a final polish thing. Um, so I've been using CodePen a lot for kind of creating these almost like motion mock-ups or, or um, prototypes, depending on how you want to think of them, to show people you know, what things could look like and how they could be. Um, so for web stuff, I like to stick with that. I don't know, do you have any different tools you use for kind of exploring these and, and showing them to, to clients? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It depends on the context. Um, sometimes it can be as simple as maybe just waving my hands around a bit to show the kind of intent. But when it comes to really delivering something, um, for CodePen, I'd use that for more low fidelity stuff. I would use that to, say, abstract the core of an animation from a design. Um, and then that could be something that uh, just delivers on that specific aspect and doesn't necessarily reflect the entire design. But like a wireframe might show the layout. It might then just show how the animation works in isolation. Uh, but for more high fidelity stuff, um, I'm a fan because I'm a, I come from a technical background. I like using tools like Framer.js. Right, yeah. Uh, so that's... It's perhaps slightly heavy for, for some users. You need to know a bit more programming. It's JavaScript. But I've had some success with Principle as well. Uh, it's pretty useful. I've I've did a project recently where I did a lot of framer prototypes as well. And, and I was really impressed with how powerful it was. Uh, but one thing I ran into, and I'm curious if you ran into this too, um, for this particular project, uh, the client wanted to kind of use these framer prototypes for user testing, which was great. But we kind of ran into this problem where we were like, where does the prototype end in like building the actual thing start? Like we're not going to build this thing in Framer, but some of these prototypes got so involved. Um, we started kind of wondering like, are we putting too much time into these? Like, should we just be building the real thing? Do you ever end up in that situation? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a, it's something to, um, 
to make the call on, depending on how far into a project maybe we need to get or what we're building. But the times I found it most useful was when we were developing iOS applications. Right. And the time to get something properly into into the phone would be longer than it would be to mock something up in Framer. But really, I guess whatever gets something visible is the quickest, is, is the best approach for us that we find. Uh, being able to just getting to the point of something that could be moved around. I mean, it was a bit of a crazy example, but I once just used a whiteboard and a marker, drew out each of the different screens, took a photo and imported each one into principle and put together the, the animations in the most lo-fi way possible. But it got the point across. Yeah, of just like the goal being to articulate your idea in a way that the other people on your team or the stakeholders can also understand it. And, you know, that's the that's the goal. It's not so much the tool. It's not like to show off your framer chops. It's to explain a thing in a way other people can understand it. So I like that approach really a lot, that especially the quickness of it, you know, the faster you can get to that, the better. And, you know, maybe that doesn't mean excessive tools or even, you know, what you described, you're kind of using principle in a very different way than I think it's intended, but Hey, it works. Yeah. It, it made the, it made the decision easier to make. People could understand what it was we were trying to build and it got us to the next step. Yeah, I mean that's that's what you that's the main goal, especially you know you want to move that design process forward. So yeah, it's, it's interesting how many of these prototyping tools are out there right now. Like I feel like well now we're kind of losing some because Pixate has just said they're going away because they got acquired, I guess, by Google last year, whenever that was. But it seems like we have so many of these tools. The main reason for that, I think, is because we're still figuring out how to use these things, like how to make them part of our design process. You know, we have all these options and we can use whichever one in whichever way makes the most sense for us. I guess it's a bit of a Cambrian explosion of sorts of tools, maybe like what we're having in the JavaScript world as well, where the the options have just exploded. Um, there are as many uh, tools as there are opinions. <laughs> That is so true. It's like, just like there's a new prototyping tool almost every day, there's a new JavaScript library with a lot of opinions attached to it every day, too. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to ask you about is you wrote an article when about using animation in your style guide and the importance of having animation in your style guide. Can you talk a bit about the benefits of like documenting these animation decisions you make? One of the biggest benefits is that you don't, well, it, li it limits the, the, the opportunity for, for designs to diverge away from standards. Um, by designing or building as we go, and I've had this happen to me in the past where I would come up with ideas as I went along, things would evolve, and I wouldn't necessarily have the time to really go back to the start and make sure that everything fits that latest idea. Uh, so in a sense, then it's a way of grinding the design and the um, decisions into one place that can then be revisited and evolve with the design. So for animation, then you can bring animation into that um, maybe through the use of video or through live examples of CSS or a JavaScript. And these these aren't meant to be a, a do it once and then use that as a rule going forwards forever, but instead a central repository of ideas, ideally an evolving idea that can always change as the brand evolves. Right. I mean, that's really, that's really key to any style guide, really. It's like you can't just like write it and be like, it's done. That is the style guide. Like no matter what, you know, your goals as a business, your brand evolves, the things you make evolve. Like it has to be this kind of, um, I guess, living document for lack of a better description. Absolutely. And it can be, it can be fun to make it as well. Being able to have that freedom to explore ideas a, a, you know, one step aside from the actual live code or the real product that's being worked on. It can be a, a place to have more 
experimentation. Right. And that's a really, really good point. Like if you are, if your goal is to document these things, your animation decisions as part of your style guide, it kind of forces you to examine them a little more closely and gives you that room or, you know, motivation to kind of experiment with them and maybe see if you have the best solutions or if there's a better one or a better fit. Like in documenting it, you have to look at it more closely, which can lead you to making, you know, more specific or, or you know, better fitting decisions, which I think is a great side benefit of, of um, style guides and, and putting animation in them. Absolutely. And are there examples yourself that you've used of style guides on projects? That, uh, or approaches to even to making the style guides that you'd find useful? Yeah, I mean, I kind of do like what you were describing of kind of setting up this this base system of like easing and maybe, you know, set animations. And maybe that becomes like a secret style guide that the only people that see it is like me and the other folks, you know, like the other uh, designers and developers, and maybe it doesn't become an official document. Um, but I have worked with some other clients uh, like Shopify and, and helping them, you know, define an actual style guide for themselves. So I find that there's a kind of that spectrum, like there's the style guide parts benefit you as the person building it and designing it to a certain extent. And sometimes you can just kind of hold those and keep them to yourself to make your job easier and uh, more consistent and not always have it be like kind of like a, an official document. It's still useful either way. And I guess that takes some of the pressure off having to deliver it as a, as a, as a product in itself. It can be a little messier, a little bit less, um, have a little bit less selling to it, right? That there's always that part of a style guide where you have to both establish why this is a good idea and you know kind of like the baseline of like good design decisions and then also uh, the brand personality on top of that you know there's that kind of balance of education and description you can't just be like do this or else because that would not make for a good style guide (laughs) (laughs) or at least not one anyone wants to use (laughs) and that's the danger as well you don't want a style guide that people don't use it has to stay relevant like you have to really um create something that people want to use and want to turn to and can easily find like that's almost just as much a challenge about style guides as like the actual content is is getting people to use them and making them you know easy and approachable in that sense they are uh, I mean they're very useful but they're definitely not like you can't make a style guide in like five minutes and be like I'm done style guide go (laughs) there's a reason people talk about them so much you know there's there's a they're involved and still very useful, but to do them right takes a little bit of work. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, you know, some uh, one project you've had going on for, I guess, a couple of years now, CSS Animation Rocks. Um, has it been, how long has it been going on? That's, I launched that one uh, January last year, so I guess about 19 months or so. What was your motivation to start this project and, and how's it been going over the last nearly two years? It's, it's a great project. I, I've really enjoyed building it. Uh, this is something I started it came from uh, my interest in blogging and sharing as I learned new things um, over the past maybe five or so years. I've got into more the idea that as I learn something, I learn it better if I share the knowledge as I'm learning it. Just It's almost like a practice thing to help me really understand uh, by trying to explain it. And so I was blogging for a while about all sorts of topics, AngularJS, Node.js. Um, and I started making things with CSS as really as an experiment just to see what could be done. And I made some fun examples and demos uh, and found that there was, it, it was very well received with anyone that I shared the posts with. So I decided to really focus it down on one subset of, of, of the whole stuff I was learning and really focus on CSS animation as a topic and see where that would go. Uh, to do that, then I registered CSSanimation.rocks and <laughs> set up a very basic little site there and made it rock-themed. 
and put in some posts and experiments that really reflected just my my journey into learning about CSS animation and the kinds of ideas I had about what maybe it could achieve. It really comes from the idea of, well, I wonder if this is possible. And then I tried it and then talked about what I did or, or didn't achieve in the process. Oh, I like that a lot. I like, the, I like the idea of, you know, sharing as you go and the fact that like sharing and writing about it actually makes, kind of helps your learning process as well. So it's, you know, this kind of like, um, you you get things from it as well as give things while you create these sorts of, of projects. Absolutely. It's been really well received and that's that's massively encouraging in itself. It's just great to get feedback from people or to um, even to have people actually pay money for a course <laughs> is amazing as well, of course. Uh, the last year and a half then, I've been gradually adding to the site. One of the directions I thought would be interesting would be to try to extend it into as many languages as possible. Oh. And there's a great service called Native. Uh, I believe it's Get Native. They provide a, a platform for people to uh, to submit partial or complete translations of articles. And I've been using their service for well over a year now. It's been translated into about a dozen languages, and it's just amazing to see the 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 the, uh, the diversity of the site as a result of being able to reach a much bigger audience than than just people that can speak English. Right, right. That's a really good, that's a really good goal. Because I think we, especially as people who speak English as a first language, I think we often forget that, you know, the entire internet doesn't. And when we're just putting out content in English, maybe we are leaving out some people who can't actually, you know, learn from it, because it's just not a language they're comfortable with. That's a really great effort. I like it. And it's it's fantastic to get the feedback as well. People have really gone to some effort to translate these articles. Um, and, and they end up more involved in the, in the process as a result. There was a fantastic um, back and forth there recently um, with a fellow called Mohammed from Yemen. And he was a part of the course. He did the, the, my CSS Animation 101 email course. And as a result, he got very excited about CSS Animation. He made some fantastic examples and actually featured some of them in the newsletter. And he then went on to help translate some articles into Arabic. And so I, I did not expect when I started a year and a half ago, building the site that it would it would have such an impact and, and reach so many people. Yeah, no, but that's that's great. Like you said, it's really rewarding to put this out there and then see get that response and and kind of have people jump in and help you share it even further than you could have on your own. That's that's really great. And even just personally, in terms of the skills, I I always like learning and learning new skills. And there's I've always wondered: is there a big gap between the the fun demos and the the real life application of work in the UI animation? Yeah, like how do we combine those two worlds of this kind of make anything you want? Because there's no rules to like client requires certain things. <laughs> well, I guess they can be inspiring. They can open up ideas, make people think about what the browser can do. Um, but what I've learned really from creating the demos, um, I've run into browser quirks, performance issues, uh, how to sculpt animations and how things move over time and these skills i have found useful when it comes to building ui animation um, and without pushing things a bit you might not know what really can be achieved and but i suppose in the end it's all it's all good practice it's, it's good at uh, practicing the specific skills that then can be applied to more more practical situations no that's a really good point like you may not you might make like an experimental code pen that's like a crazy particle world with crazy things going on and you that may never come up in your like a particle system may never come up for your real day job but the things you learn creating that 
mean, that's kind of the basis of your knowledge that you're going from no matter what the project at hand is. It's a really good way to think about it and really creates that value of that experimentation. Like it's not just a throwaway thing. Exactly. There's something to learn in every project. Very, very true. I think that's a good a good spot to end on. Um, but before we go and uh, close up this episode, where can people find you online? And um, definitely tell us what we can find at CSS Animation Rocks. Sure. Uh, my Twitter handle, if people want to get in touch personally, is Donovan H, D-O-N-O-V-A-N-H. And the website, cssanimation.rocks, it has articles and tutorials all about CSS animation. And there's a course there as well if you want to go further. It's currently pay what you want, which means if you want to try it out for free, that's absolutely great. And there's also a weekly newsletter on the site too. I've been collating interesting articles and interesting, inspiring examples of UI animation. And each week that goes out and you can sign up if you want, if you like to receive news around that too. That's all at cssanimation.rocks. Great, great. It's a really great project and I'm, I'm really excited to see how this is all, how this has grown and excited to see what you're going to do with it next. So thanks so much for joining me. It was really, really great talking with you and I, I hope we get to chat again soon. Thank you very much, Val. It's been great. That's it for episode three. Be sure to follow Donovan on Twitter as Donovan H and check out CSS Animation Rocks. I'll link both of those in the show notes too, of course, because it's a lot easier to find them that way. If you want to learn more about making motion style guides and making animation a part of your own process, check out my book, Designing Interface Animation, on Rosenfeld Media. It covers all that stuff and more, and you can find it at designinginterfaceanimation.com. You've been listening to Season 2, Episode 3 of Motion and Meaning, with me, Val Head. You can find out more about the show at motionandmeaning.io, as well as listen to all of last season's episodes with myself and Kenneth Bowles, and you can find those on the site or on iTunes. I'd love to hear your feedback on the show via Twitter. You can find me there as Motion and Meaning. And if you're enjoying the show, give us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find out about Motion and Meaning. See you again soon.